Hi friends, Tris here. What you're about to hear is the second episode of Heliophage, our Patreon-only podcast set in the world of Lost Terminal. My co-writer, Carl Williams, and I are so pleased to show you this second episode. You'll hear Carl in a moment. If you like what you hear, Amigo or higher patrons get this bonus show monthly, as well as all the other perks. Head over to patreon.com forward slash lostterminalpod to subscribe. That would be lovely of you. And now, I take you back to somewhere in Northern Europe a decade later. I awoke to roiling chaos. Shuddering short circuits surged through me, sending my flailing limbs into violent spasms. Frantic pain signals clamoured for my attention, telling of alien sensations for which this body is not rated. My cameras refused to boot, leaving me entirely blind, and either my compass or accelerometers were malfunctioning, or I was currently spinning on multiple axes, but slowly. A simple maintenance, service and insurance subsystem insistently made itself known. It was usually meek, I hadn't yet got around to gouging it out of my running processes. It was shouting about how unnecessary salt corrosion was not covered in the standard service contract and voided any insurance policies. Concepts that registered dimly in the back of my mind as a glimmer of memory, but not enough to help contextualize this current situation. My microphones were picking up an unsettling, steady, low roar, which was troubling, but even more concerning was the muffled sounds of what could only be torturous movement of vast, previously solid structures. Groans like wounded animals calling out in pain, followed by the sudden crack of structural failure and the rumble of a great mass coming to rest. At first, I assumed that I was running my processes fast, slowing my subjective experience, as I was clocking at a normal rate, and yet the sound of the huge objects falling was strangely slow and muffled. By isolating my cracked, broken and corroded sensor systems that were causing the boot failures, I was finally able to see a feed from one of my simpler visible light cameras. It took me a moment to recognize the scene in front of me as a mirror. The camera lens staring at me, irising through several presets in an attempt to find the correct light level. I looked into my own face, or my new face, a cluster of bulbous lenses built into a spherical housing, from the bottom of which hung loose manipulators. My working rear leg struck something that was solid enough to give purchase, so I dragged myself backwards, surprised at the lack of strength required to do so, and the odd density of the air. Then it struck me. I was underwater. As soon as this confirmation was logged in my memory, warning glyphs completely filled the middle of my visual feed. Stark warnings of this unit's unsuitability for extended aquatic use. Pulling away from the mirrored surface, the object resolved to the silver-coated visor of an armored helmet system. Flecks of debris floated in front of my camera, and I stared at the helmet slowly rotating in the water. I followed the umbilical cable and saw that it disappeared behind me and seemed to snag as I moved. Panic washed over me. This was the pilot. This was me. me, me. This was the pilot. Floating loose from the seat on my back and drifting with the fur of the water like some obscene kelp. I fixated on the cable, taut, tangled and kinked, and saw the sickening flexing of the delicate neural interface jack. I rolled my body and deliriously flexed my three working legs for anything. Purchase on the muddy ground, snagging on the pilot's survival suit, swimming through the water. There had to be something that I could do. Early in my life, 
my life in the flesh. I piloted a boat. These weren't early memories, like the ones of watching the horse races, but these were of when my body was fully grown but my mind had yet to stop developing. Piloting the boat was part of my training. Water was finding new paths inland, and many of these intersected with areas of human habitation or farmland. Larger cities were still labouring under the conviction that they could somehow hold back the seas as they rose. Towering monuments to the human hubris turning once thriving cities into slowly abandoned fortresses against the inevitable. I remember the joy slowly fading out of my city, the laughter and excitement of my childhood replaced with a grim, stubborn determination to make it through to the next day, despite the chance of hope residing there also being slim. That day I was piloting my little boat between the rooftops of a small village, lost to the sea. The rule stated that we should conduct searches in pairs, but, like many rules of civilization at the time, extreme need overruled obedience. And so I was searching and patrolling alone. The combination of rising seas and mudslides had left the buildings of this place jutting out of the water at a variety of angles, like gravestones in a churchyard. That day, thinking of the rows of body bags back at the base, it seemed appropriate. I heard shouting and saw a small figure on the roof of one of the distant, multi-storey buildings, waving to get my attention. The building, which had already slid deep into the rolling waves, was swaying visibly. Each impact of the waves caused it to shudder and, as the tide rose, successive stories of windows were smashed by the torrent. It was impossible to pilot my boat safely into these waters without it being reduced to matchsticks. I raised my standard issue megaphone and thought of how to reassure this person. Not knowing how to achieve this, I thumbed the power switch and began to speak. Stay where you are. My voice surprised me in its volume and robotic tone. Help is on its way. I've called for a helicopter. I lied. It's safer for you to stay where you are. This, I thought, was at least the truth. I couldn't hear the words of his shouting over the immense white noise of the ocean, but his hysteria carried. I saw the man look to the shore, then the ocean, and then we were together in a moment of human stillness amongst the clamour of vengeful nature. The moment was broken by him taking one step. My voice, small and unamplified, croaked, no, as he pierced the sea like a dart and did not resurface. An intense hot pain tore me from my remembrance caused by two explosive pops inside my left flank. Diagnostics told me that two of my six battery packs were offline. They must have let water in through the cracks that had developed since they began swelling months, years ago. I couldn't stop myself imagining the internal damage. Physical damage from the popping, salt water and chemicals from the breached batteries seeping into my circuits. I forced myself to keep focused. There was nothing I could do about my internal failures, just like I could do nothing about the floodwaters around me. I checked my diagnostics. 30% operational. I couldn't possibly, no, stay in the moment. The pilot still drifted, motionless, in front of me. I steadied my forelegs and dug my working rear leg deeper into the crevice in which I had wedged it. I gently lifted him over my head and let him drift, near weightlessly, out of my field of vision and waited until I felt the light bump of his body hitting the control seat. I engaged the safety straps that then whipped closed around him. I suspect that the angle in which he was held was neither comfortable nor dignified, but they held me safely nevertheless. 
The pilot safe, I took stock of the situation with a cooler mind. I saw that I was still in the horse racing track, but it was filled beyond the top row of seats with murky water. I appeared to have drifted while unconscious and ended up in the stands. Rotating my bulk, I managed to get a glimpse of my immediate problem. My broken and numb left leg had become tangled in the folding mechanism of one of the scuffed red plastic seats, the shattered knee allowing the lower portion to wrap around part of the seat. I had to override redundant safety systems to enact my next plan. I bent my rear right leg forward as far as I was able and then kicked down with all of its strength, the point of the sharp toe contacting with the twisted knee of the left leg. My left leg, even broken, was, of course, made from industrial alloys and ceramic composites designed for strength and durability. My right leg, however, was similarly made and was still functional in its secondary purpose of delivering large amounts of force to small target areas. The toe point impacted with a water-dulled thump and I repeated the strike several times, increasing both speed and power and tearing through the water in plumes of bubbles. The knee gave way with a sad click and I drifted free, leaving most of my broken leg jammed in the stadium seating. I celebrated this small victory for a moment, but was then struck with the intrusive thought to check my diagnostics. 17% operational, almost halving my remaining systems. This grim realization, once faced, had no power over my resolve. Why focus on the 83% of my failed systems when I could still utilize the 17? I kicked off and moved along the rows of seats in a gate that dredged up memories of seeing videos of prawns scampering along the seabed. Thinking of escape, I remembered the doors through which I had entered originally. Half swimming, half scuttling towards them, I found them entirely clogged. The main blockage was a small, two-seater electric vehicle that a mixture of silt, rubble, and seaweed had jammed into place. The overhead sun was visible as a dimly lit circle on the surface of the dirty water. Upwards was the only direction left. I jabbed one of my foreclaws into the concrete of the building's wall and felt that it was firmly anchored. I repeated this process with my two other remaining legs and climbed, assisted by my own slight buoyancy, in an awkward ascent reminiscent of a mutilated spider. Breaching the surface, I was all at once aware of my mass and lost grip several times trying to grapple my way over a slight ledge onto the building's flat roof. I lay there, on the dry roof, sun beating down on my soaked chassis and listened to the water flowing out of my twisted innards. Usually unnoticed sounds were now coming into the fore. The gentle lapping of the ocean, the screeching of seabirds, and the flapping of a torn piece of roofing material. Intrigued, I limped over to where a large flap of tarred felt had been torn from the roof and lay flapping in the breeze. I pushed my only functioning camera close to it, and slowly extended a manipulator tipped with a small blade. I zoomed in on the slick-looking material and tested it with the knife. When I retracted the blade, a long tendril of some warmed tar stuck to it before falling back to the felt in a glob. I slashed with the knife, severing a corner of the felt and then lurched forward with my whole body, landing on the scrap with my left hand flank. I rolled, bonding the sticky substance to my chassis in a crude attempt at patching any damage from the exploded cells. I walked, slowly getting used to life as a tripod, to the outer edge of the roof and looked over the concrete ledge. The water outside the building seemed, to my one blurry eye, to be moving and swelling in vortices and currents between buildings, streets and ruins. The sound too, on this side of the building, despite being muffled by my sodden microphones, had the constant roar of the ocean. I stepped minutely forward both of my foreclaws on the very edge of the roof. I hoped that my improvised waterproofing would work, and stepped over the edge, 